Madam Vijayalakshmi Pandit, especially here in these hallowed halls. For they are hallowed not simply because of a long and proud history of accomplishment in a variety of fields of inquiry, this of course, but also because of particular accomplishment in the pursuit of progressive ideals of a more just and more inclusive equal world. That is, the values Somerville has stood for since its inception in 1879. The series of which today's event is a part helps mark 100 years of women at Oxford University. I have had the good grace to have been mentored and guided throughout my entire career by pioneering women. Dalit scholar Eleanor Zelliot, women's social reform expert Gail Minot, and Barbara Welter of Cult of Domesticity fame. And so I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge my teachers and to dedicate my remarks to them. And finally, before I get started, I would like to recognize that the family of Madam Pandit was invited to be here today, including her daughter, the celebrated writer Nayanthara Segal, and granddaughter, the human rights activist Gita Segal. While they were unable to make this trip from India, they send their greetings. <coughs> um, Vijay Lakshmi Pandit was born in 1900 and lived a long, full life until 1990. Her story thus is intricately intertwined with that of her country, and through it, we can also tell the story of India and the world in the 20th century. She was born into an aristocratic family and grew up in Downton Abbey-esque surroundings. <laughs> her upstairs, downstairs, run home in the city of Allahabad called Anand Bhavan, the abode of happiness. Sarup Nehru, her name as given at birth, was the daughter of a powerful, gregarious, and extremely wealthy lawyer named Motilal, the middle of three children. She was always closest to her elder brother, Jawaharlal. Nan, as she was commonly known, was a precocious child who was schooled formally only by private tutors, and only up to an intermediate level. But her real education stemmed from her love of reading, facilitated by Anand Bhavan's magnificent library, and through her intellectually stimulating environment and the life that followed from it. Luminaries of all kinds filtered in and out of the house, and she herself began international travel from the age of five. The family grew close to Mohandas Gandhi soon after his return to India from South Africa in 1914, and through the bond they developed, grew ever more involved in politics. The early years of Nan's life were devoted to family affairs. She married at the age of 21 when she changed her name to Vijay Lakshmi Pandit, taking her husband Ranjit's patronym for her own. Association with Gandhi dramatically altered their lifestyle. Jewels, silks, delicately, wo delicately woven tapestries, the finest china, all gave way to rough handwoven clothes and social upliftment work especially for those from marginalized caste communities. By 1930, she entered prison for the first of three times, and through that fiery experience, emerged tempered and steely, ready to enter the public fray in more serious fashion. A truly extraordinary, indeed cinematic, life followed, as she became one of the most celebrated women from the global south in the 20th century, one of the world's most recognized and respected diplomats. Several moments from throughout her life really stand out. 
When she was still but a small child, she and the rest of her family were accorded a special honor by King George and Queen Mary. Later, when she was touring Europe for the first time, she was arrested for the attempted assassination of Mussolini. Back in India, as tensions mounted, she faced down angry, violent mobs, forcing them to disperse. She faced down angry, violent mobs, forcing them to disperse merely with the force of her personality and the power of her words. In the late 1930s, she not only found herself in Czechoslovakia during the Sudeten crisis, she was squarely in the middle of things, with Lord Runciman staying right next to her. Shortly thereafter, she stood outside 10 Downing Street as Chamberlain declared peace for our time. In India, she battled famine and disease, even to the point of personal collapse. She served as a key intellectual founding force of the United Nations and later was instrumental to the resolution of the Korean War. She became so beloved and so famous that ordinary folks like taxi drivers in the United States sang her praises. And even the incorrigible Winston Churchill was won over in the end. Back in the United States, she told President Kennedy not to go to Dallas. She became friends with Ingrid Bergman and Roberto Rossellini, and later helped resolve their complicated marriage, even as she oversaw India's sensational trial of the century, a made-for-tabloids murder case involving a naval officer. And then, and then, she resisted, fought against, and helped defeat her own niece, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, to end her authoritarian emergency and restore democracy. Eloquent, glamorous, brilliant, the most remarkable woman that Eleanor Roosevelt ever met, in Eleanor's own words. She was the first woman cabinet minister in India, succeeding Margaret Bonfield, uh, who held that position in the UK, and the first to wield substantial power in matters of self-government and public health. She was elected the president of the All India Women's Conference, where she tried to push it from elite concerns to more people-oriented ones. And from there, a host of breakthrough positions. Member of the Constituent Assembly of India, India's first ambassador to the United Nations, India's first ambassador to Moscow, the first woman ambassador to the United States, the first woman president of the UN General Assembly, additional appointments to Mexico, Ireland, and Spain, member of India's parliament, high commissioner to the United Kingdom, governor of Maharashtra, and representative to the United Nations Human Rights Commission. An extraordinary life. But this synopsis, I hasten to add, should not give the impression of hagiography. While her career was remarkable, she faced several major challenges, had many ups and downs, and did not always make the right decision. All as befits someone charting a new course. She battled depression, fatigue, and several breakdowns, sometimes publicly, sometimes privately. She was loving, but had a sometimes rocky relationship with members of her own family, like her sister Betty, and, as I indicated previously, her niece, Indira. And while she was lauded for her prowess in the West, she was nonetheless eventually iced out as her brother's closest counsel and confidant on international matters by her long-standing competitor, V.K. Krishnamenon. Now, with all of this in mind, let's turn to the main topic 
of our discussion today, Vijay Lakshmi Pandit's International Thought. There are two important points we need to keep in mind before proceeding. First, as India's leading voice in the global arena for at least a decade, she wielded considerable influence with plenty of latitude to act according to her own judgment. Even so, she held official positions and was an emissary of her government. And thus, whatever she said or did had to broadly fit into their policies, the policies of the government, and she had to follow the parameters set by the foreign minister and prime minister, both in this case being the same person, her brother, Jawaharlal Nehru. So whatever positions she embraced and advocated, with one major exception, which I'll return to at the very end, must be seen as part of the overall foreign policy framework of India. Secondly, Pandit was a prolific writer, but her book-length works were experiential in nature. What happened while she was a minister, her days in prison during the 1940s, and memoir of the broad sweep of her life. She did not write treatises on foreign policy, international relations, or philosophy but she did write many letters and speeches on these subjects, enough, in fact, to fill volumes. I know I'm going through them. <laughs> and therein, in various ways, large and small, explicated a meaningful and coherent worldview, independently evolved, eclectic, and cosmopolitan. This even, at times, put her at odds with Gandhi and Nehru, though this must be seen in dialogical rather than oppositional terms. These two points taken together are worth contemplating when we seek to reconstruct a history of international thought for India or anywhere else. That is, much as we can now see that women's historic unpaid labor in the home was nonetheless work that contributed specifically also to the financial well-being of the family, letters, conversations, and the like must be seen as critical contributions to the larger narrative. Jawaharlal Nehru is often credited with shaping independent India's ideas and for providing the most detailed understanding of international affairs in his country, often in deeply insightful, lengthy books. While this remains true, I think Vijay Lakshmi Pandit's contributions, and indeed those of many other women, have simply not been properly acknowledged nor fully explored on account of both their gender and in part derivative of that, the manner and fora in which they expressed their ideas. And that is precisely why the mandate for this term's Global Thinker series here at Oxford is so vital. I hope my further comments will help us take some new steps towards correcting for such absences. So, returning to my first point, the basic objectives of India's official foreign policy were laid out by Jawaharlal Nehru in September 1946 just as he was taking over the interim government in anticipation of the transfer of power. These were, and these are the official points um, of India's foreign policy, full cooperation in international conferences, close contacts with other nations and cooperation with them in the furtherance of world peace, non-alignment with power groups, belief in the indivisibility of peace and freedom, uh, special concern for emancipation of colonial and dependent countries, opposition to racialism, claim for equality and honorable treatment for the people of India anywhere in the world, and, and, belief in the ultimate evolution of one world 
based on close cooperation and absence of exploitation. Nehru himself believed in progressive internationalism, a holistic outlook he developed from 1919 in measure through exchanges with Gandhi, but in the context of a larger domestic and international literary sphere that included Rabindranath Tagore, Sarojini Naidu, Muhammad Iqbal, and Wendell Wilkie, as well as a range of Fabian socialists like George Bernard Shaw, Bertrand Russell, and Sidney and Beatrice Webb, of whom, uh, all of whom influenced his sister as well. And David, I, I did look up Rita, uh, the, the secretary um, of a, a particular um, colonial branch of, of uh, the Fabians, and um, she was fond of, she, she sort of thought highly of Nehru, but she went back and forth, and I'm not, I wasn't able to be clear about how much he, was, he had interactions with her. Uh, we, uh, um, we had dinner uh, last evening, and this came up. Um, I have previously explained in my book, The Peacemakers, that the request for One World was post-colonial India's strategic, obje strategic objective, that the quest for One World was post-colonial India's strategic objective, and the guiding star for all of its actions. Its famed policy of non-alignment, wherein it refused to subscribe to either Cold War bloc, was a plank in its larger foreign policy platform, not the platform itself. Mm. One World was a euphemism for world government, a supranational body that would help govern that would, that would help govern internationally connected, independent, autonomous states, a united federation of the planet, if you will. While this was an airy goal, the frosty haze of the Cold War governed ground realities, and so the country was more immediately concerned with the prevention of nuclear annihilation. Vijay Lakshmi Pandit's actions in the post-war world all follow this agenda to which she subscribed, even, in fact, long after her own brother had given up. To help us better understand her international thought and to help us see how it both informed and was informed by her brother's vision, I want to highlight two distinct moments hinging on Nehru's 1946 elucidation of India's foreign policy objectives. The first moment is from 1941 to 1942 during World War II, before the creation of the interim government, and the other moment takes place immediately after in 1946. For the first moment, I'm going to share, for the first time ever, two <laughs> excerpts from the manuscript of my biography of Vijay Lakshmi Pandit. For the second, I'll discuss by way of conclusion her great debate with Jan Smuts in the United Nations, which helped to, to redefine the New World Organization from the outset and established the precedent for international human rights norms thereafter. The excerpts that follow are in narrative form and are part, as Sharni indicated, of a so far nearly actually 110,000 word <laughs> manuscript. <Oops. laughs> uh, uh, change just took place. Okay, here we go. Nan's disappointment at having to shelve her China plans for the time being was tempered by some other news that arrived at just the same moment. She had been elected the president of the 16th session of the All India Women's Conference. She had just fallen ill with a mild form of heat stroke from her frequent travel between various cities and towns and needed to take a few days off to recuperate from severe headaches and fever. Under doctor's orders, she had canceled a planned trip to Bombay 
where she had hoped to meet up with Ramesh Rineru, Rajkumari Amritkar, and all the other luminaries at the ongoing conference meetings. She had hoped only that her absence would not be attributed to any incorrect reason. So word of her election took her somewhat by surprise. Every province, except my own, voted for me, she told Ranjit bemusedly. Ranjit is her husband. A few days after Nan was named to her new position of leadership, a group of prominent British women who considered themselves friends of India, feminists, and activists in the cause of peace delivered an open message to the women of India, stressing British friendliness, urging them to realize India's peril from the Axis, and pleading with them to embrace the war effort fully. Several of these writers were the same ones who had earlier criticized the British government over Nan's arrest. That's a, a previous, excerpt, previous part of the book including Dame Elizabeth Cadbury of chocolate fame and Grace Lancaster. But this was a broader group that included the likes of Lady Violet Bonham Carter, the daughter of a former British prime minister and close companion of current PM Winston Churchill and later grandmother of celebrated Hollywood actress Helena. We know how passionately you hate war. We hate war too, they wrote saying it was a terrible indictment of their generation that brute force was used as an instrument of policy. Nevertheless, they felt the Axis was an existential threat that had to be fought, and they warned of what was to come to the subcontinent if the Allies did not soon prevail. They said, we are told that some of you say that this is the war of British imperialism and that therefore Indian nationalists can have no part in it. They wrote with disbelief. They quoted a recent FDR broadcast that the whole world stood, quote, divided between human slavery and freedom. And they begged India to set aside political differences for the moment and join the fight for the side that they knew it stood for. Without victory for the democracies, there can be no Indian freedom. And we assure you in all sincerity that never was there so much sympathy with Indian aspirations as is to be found in Britain today. That's how they ended. Though the letter may have been well-intentioned, it was not well-received in India. <coughs> Many took umbrage with the writer's ignorance of ground realities. Nan, for her part, was outraged and dashed off a reply straight off without thinking of its suitability. Right after posting it, Nan was contacted by Rajkumari Amritkar, um, a colleague from the All India Women's Conference, who asked if she would sign on to a joint statement critiquing the British women's appeal. Sarojini Naidu, Ramesh Nehru, Rani Lakshmibai Rajwade, and a few other leaders of the All India Women's Conference had also been asked to co-sign. Nan thought the Rajkumari's response, milk and water, especially when compared to her own, but added her name in any event. This is what they said. They wrote in their individual capacities, but also as representatives of the Women's Conference and of the conviction of a large body of India's women. They called out the white privilege, condescension, and willful blindness they saw in the open message. India was already fighting on behalf of the West. So, so such a plaintive plea was really just cover for the further denial of Indian self-determination. Prime Minister Churchill, Nan and the others pointed out, 
had, quote, no misgivings about the status that India occupies in the British mind. It is a dependency which can be and is being utilized at the British will. He knows that he does not need the consent or cooperation of India's thinking sons and daughters in anything that Britain wants for fighting the war. The British used Indian soldiers as well as taxation and so-called voluntary contributions to claim any amount of money that they wished. The fact is, the AIWC team wrote, wrote bluntly, you are wholly wrong in your estimate of things. You quote today that the whole world is divided between human slavery and human freedom. The fact is there is no such thing as human freedom for the Asiatic races, certainly not for India, nor is there any for the Africans either. The result, whatever it may be of the war, will not alter their condition for the better, save through their own efforts. As we see the realities, it is this. It is a war between the British Empire and the Nazis and fascists for world domination meaning, in effect, the exploitation of the non-European races. We cannot be in love with Nazism and fascism, but we may not be expected to be in love with British imperialism either. Now, for context, um, I spend a, a, an enormous amount of time preceding all of this explaining. It is important to note that Vijayalakshmi Pandit and her brother had consistently called out the threat posed by fascism from the late 1930s in Europe and in England as well. Uh, and that's partially why they were at 10 Downing Street uh, when uh, Chamberlain made his announcement. It was the sanctimoniousness of the British appeal that Indian women found most irksome. Lastly, they wrote, let us point out the anomaly of British women asking India, though a slave nation, to help a slave owner in distress. Instead of asking the slave owner to undo the wrong and cure himself of the initial sin and thus ensure the moral justness of his position. This presentation of the picture may appear unpleasant to you, but it is nonetheless sincere, and we could not answer your sincerity except by being equally sincere. The independently crafted response was published first, followed several days later by the collective petition. Nan received letters of congratulation from different parts of India for her efforts. Okay, that's the first of the two excerpts from um, the biography manuscript. Here's the second. The 16th session of the All India Women's Conference was held in late December 1941 in the southern coastal city of Kokanada, today known as Kakinada. In entering the name of her cousin-in-law as president for the coming year, Ramesh Nehru began the meeting by highlighting non-signature achievements to date, heralding her as the most popular minister in her province. She is well known for her tact, for her discrimination, uh, for her grasp of things and for her ability to work with all kinds of people and in all kinds of situations. She knows how to tackle difficult problems and in her dexterous hands, they become easy of solution. It is her capacity for hard work which has given her the position in public life of the country which she holds today, she said in praise. Other opening remarks were just as laudatory, if not more so. Margaret Cousins, declared that Nan's presidency crowned with success all that cousins had fought and stood for over the past decades. A princess from a small local zamindari, that is princely state, Yuvrani of Pitapuram, then in the same capacity that Nan previously had, that Nan previously had, formally welcomed all of the delegates to the conference 
by drawing attention to global events. The All India Women's Movement is not an isolated movement. It is part of a great world movement. We are seeing with what heroism and strength of conviction our comrades, the women in China, Russia, Britain, and America are facing the cruel vicissitudes of fortune. In all likelihood, we may have to face a similar fate, she noted. Now the time has come when we are confronted with problems that are not limited to the exclusive spheres of the woman or the man alone. They belong to the common humanity and demand a solution. Perhaps the perfect solution will never be possible in the sphere of human activities, limited as the human being is in his intellectual and physical capabilities. But nevertheless, a solution of the problems is an imperative need if a belief in a better future is to be maintained. This conception is not utopian. It is practicable. It is an effort, a great and worthy effort, a great and worthy effort. Disarmament, greater peace, a more sensible economic rehabilitation, and a better and more equitable distribution of the world's natural resources, a more human view of science, education, and art are all factors in that effort. Nan's keynote address, this is where she's the president, delivered shortly thereafter, echoed many of these sentiments. She too drew connections to women around the world and to organizations fighting for interrelated causes. She started by lamenting the absence of British writer and peace activist and Somervillian, Vera Britton, who had been invited but had been unable to come due to the war. Nan then talked of her association, Vera Britton's association, with the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, an organization devoted to understanding the root causes of war and developing mechanisms for a perpetual peace, in the vein of Kant. The American icon Jane Addams was one of the founding figures of the WILPF during World War I and had won a Nobel Peace Prize in the early 30s for her efforts. Uh, Vera Britton had served as vice president in the years that followed. At the AIWC, Nan said, the great forces arising in the world today will ultimately help shape the new world which will come into being after the war. It is in planning for a new world order that women should take their share. The Women's International League for Peace and Freedom has declared itself in favor of a world order based on a new attitude of man-to-man -man and nation-to-nation -nation with a realization of interdependence and a renunciation of exploitation and profiteering. But for declarations to be effective, they must be implemented by action. She continued, we must decide whether we shall ally ourselves to the forces of life or those of death. Shall we raise our united voice in favor of a brave new world where human life and human liberty receive the respect which is their due, where progress and security are within the grasp of each individual? The future, not for women only, but for humanity as well, is what the women of India make of it. Today, today woman faces the world as an individual for the first time. Her problems are the problems of society, and while fighting for those legal, civic and economic rights, which are still denied to us, let us not forget that the whole question of rights for women 
is closely linked to the social question, which in turn is part of the larger political question. Non-mildly chastised the delegates for trying to take on too many tasks at once. As a result, they had wasted too much time passing resolutions to no meaningful effect. Non called, them, called on them to tackle one problem collectively over the coming year. In this case, the problem of illiteracy. A mass drive started by the conference would instantly invoke a response from other progressive groups and would help us to establish closer contacts with the villages and with the workers in the fields and factories. By way of ending, she first praised efforts to codify the Hindu law of succession, which sought to address deficiencies in the way women inherited property. She noted that, quote, the codification of the whole of Hindu law was urgently required based on the equality of status between man and woman. Then she closed by appealing to her friends to remove the hatred and suspicion which have crept into our midst. India belongs to all of us, she reminded them. Her greatness is the result of that culture to which each sect and religion has contributed. Her past glory, as well as her present fallen condition, are the handiwork of her children. Some of the work we have done may have value, but if we can contribute even a small measure to the unity of India, we shall not have lived in vain. There are several key takeaways we might glean from this. First, Vijay Lakshmi Pandit had a notion of rights that included the civil and political, as well as the economic and social, a totalizing conception that ultimately would serve as the basis of India's external views, which in turn shaped the official United Nations, organiz or, uh, United Nations organs it helped craft. While she does not explicitly use the term human rights here, it is clear that that is what she is referring to. The rest of her vision of the world included global interdependence and collective security, while nonetheless foregrounding anti-imperialism and anti-racism. It is also worth noting that while she spoke individually and of individualism, she also worked collaboratively with other women in the AIWC, also fashioning collective responses. We can thus see illustrated here the core values and principles of the one world concept and the other parameters of Indian foreign policy well before her brother or the American Wendell Wilkie formalized them, Wilkie doing so in 1942 or 43, 1942 to 43, which is um, over a year later. Now let me turn to the second moment, the final one I will get to in this formal part of my presentation. Those were the excerpts from the biography. This is something else. Vijay Lakshmi Pandit traveled to New York in the latter half of 1946 to serve as the head of India's delegation to the new United Nations. This was her second trip stateside, and on her previous visit, she had led the counter-delegation to the United Nations Organization Conference in San Francisco, working then with W.E.B. Du Bois and the NAACP. In that trip in 1945, she had articulated a vision for what the UN should be. It was in this trip in 1946 that she turned it into what it would be. The South, Af oh, thank Sorry. Thank you. Um, the South African Parliament. Sorry, sorry. I'm disrupting sorry, sorry. you. No, no, sorry. 
Thank you. Um, the South African Parliament, under the leadership of Prime Minister Jan Smuts, had just recently passed the Asiatic Land Tenure and Indian Representation Act, commonly known as the Ghetto Act. The law, in effect, segregated the Indian community in South Africa and denied them a variety of basic rights and privileges. The community there was outraged and rose up against the act. In addition to this, the South African state moved to annex Southwest Africa, that is today's Namibia, a former colony of Germany that had been acquired by South Africa under the mandate system following the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. Pundit's mission was to force the rollback of this policy through the diplomatic mechanisms of the new United Nations, but while doing this in an amiable manner. She was charged thus by Mahatma Gandhi himself. Jan Smuts was and was to remain a friend. She immediately began to look into the situation in South Africa and had at her disposal a report that had been prepared and submitted to the UN in August by the Indian delegation. The assessment was grim, with nearly 30 pages devoted to detailing forms of discrimination against people of Indian origin that included disenfranchisement of all women and many men, restrictions on the acquisition and occupation of land, the refusal of trading licenses, segregation, prohibition of interracial marriages with white people, and a variety of other offenses. South Africa had already made a preliminary defense to the UN Secretary General that the matter was basically a domestic one. The General Assembly and the United Nations more generally were prohibited from interfering in the internal affairs of member states under Article 2.7 of the UN Charter, the so-called Domestic Jurisdiction Clause. As Pundit and her team looked into the case closely, they concluded that the crux of the matter was the nature of and limits to Article 2.7. They speculated correctly that Smuts and his advisors would argue that Indians settled in South Africa were South African nationals and hence were subject, were subject to the laws of that land, whatever they might be. And so the Indian course of action had to be a direct assault on the very principle of domestic jurisdiction. Human rights were advocated in the UN Charter, if in the preamble, and were thus the means by which Indians could argue that the actions taking place in South Africa stood in violation of the principles and vision upon which the United Nations was founded. The legal advisors pointed out that any violation of the Charter contravened Article 14, which allowed the General Assembly to act no matter the origin of the problem. Further, they laid a strong case regarding why the preamble held significant jur juridical weight, meaning that all member states to the charter were bound by its conventions as if by a constitution. All member states' sovereignty was subject to the provisions and restrictions of the UN Charter. Ipso facto, domestic jurisdiction simply did not apply. Vijay Lakshmi Pandit, foreseeing how riveted all of you have been by that last paragraph, had to sell this dry and arid legalese to the public. She talked about her country's resolve to follow the charter in spirit and in letter, and added that they stood for, for the independence of all colonial and dependent peoples and their, and their full right to self-determination. She continued, we believe that peace and freedom are indivisible and the denial of freedom anywhere must lead to conflict and war. We seek no dominion over others, 
We claim no privileged position over other peoples, but we do claim equal and honorable treatment for our people wherever they may go, and we cannot accept discrimination against them. She ended with a stirring plea. We move, in spite of difficulties, toward a closer cooperation and the building of a world commonwealth. Let us do this with more deliberation and speed. Let us recognize that human emotions and the needs of the world will not wait for an indefinite period. To this end, let us direct our energies and remind ourselves that in our unity of purpose and action lies the hope of the world. Pandit was emotionally electric. The audience, those in the room with her, and those hearing about it through the news media were dazzled, many feeling a genuine connection with her words. The New York Times raved that she was, quote, eloquent, quote, speaking with much of the fire and intensity as her brother. Her speech, the Times noted, was interrupted by bursts of applause. But her closing statement to the General Assembly was even better. This is her. It is too late now to argue that fundamental violations of principles of the Charter are matters of domestic jurisdiction of member states. If this was the case, the Charter would be a dead letter and our professions about a world free from inequalities of race, free from want, and free, and free from fear are empty mockery, a clear echo here of FDR's Four Freedoms. She continued, I want to carry the assembly with me in these matters which I submit are common ground. If I do, as I must, unless the 54 nations assembled here place on the charter a meaning and a significance far below what its words convey, what its spirit demands, and indeed what we have asked the world to accept, then the issue rests with us, the nations of the world assembled, who have taken upon themselves the defense of the law of ethics and morality. She finished. We are the trustees of the future, architects of the new world, and it is only on the foundation of justice that we can erect a new world order. Mine is an appeal to the conscience, to the conscience of the world, which this assembly is. I will say no more. The next day, the assembly voted overwhelmingly in India's favor with a two-thirds majority. The event was heralded as an Asian victory, the triumph of the world's dispossessed and aggrieved, and the first of its kind. But the result of the vote was also of enduring consequence, for it is this moment that established the precedent that state sovereignty was not and could not be impregnable. No state could hide, no state and no one could hide behind the principle of state sovereignty to violate principles of human dignity and equality. And thus it was this moment that established the precedent for international human rights norms and laws, as UN Assistant Secretary General Henri Langier noted when he opened the Human Rights Commission several weeks later. Vijay Lakshmi Pandit, we can conclude, made critical contributions to the post-war order in theory and in practice. She not only helped develop India's core foreign policy objectives in conjunction with other women, she also helped establish one of the key principles of the international in the modern world, that the international community has a role to play in ensuring the basic protection of people everywhere. Following independence, Vijay Lakshmi Pandit became an official representative of her government, and her speeches and actions were intertwined with state policy, save, as I noted near the outset, for one exception. 
This was when she served as president of the UN General Assembly. Then she specifically distanced herself from her country and her government, saying that her new role was special. She now had to represent all people. This was a chance for her to be her true self, which, as she described it in her own words, was as, quote, a citizen of the world. Thank you. So before we take questions, I have a very quick slideshow. Um, So um, this was the picture that she used in her promotional material for her first tour of the United States when she kind of became a rock star. Um, she, she became extremely famous by uh, going and um, speaking in various venues, but also debating um, sort of prominent people, including um, uh, Winston Churchill's parliamentary secretary and defeating them uh, in, in debate. Uh, so um, this is a, a kind of well-known photograph. It represents the close bond that she and her brother had, and I think you can see the affection they have for one another in this picture. Uh, this is her with legendary uh, UN Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld. Um, I love this picture. This is her with Minerva Bernard Bernardino, uh, who uh, was the representative from the Dominican Republic who is responsible for ensuring that the UN Charter included women's rights and also for ensuring that the UN Charter does not read and man and man and man, it says and women and men or and men and women. Um, uh, and Minerva is um, a presentation right. Uh, this picture is of her in 1946 in the debate uh, with Jan Smuts. This is her consulting with her team. Uh, this is her as um, president of the uh, UN General Assembly. And oh. I, I think okay. you all know this guy. Uh, oh dear. Here she is. Um, at, this is in her official capacity as ambassador. Her brother as prime minister has come on a tour of the United States. Uh, and so she's a part of the reception committee with President Harry Truman. Um, mm -hmm. So this is her nemesis, Krishna Menon. <laughs> and here they are riding in a car to the Suez Crisis Conference here in the UK, um, which um, uh, this, this is a bit of a fall, for, fall from grace mm -hmm. uh, for her brother, uh, largely because of Menon, uh, who, who kind of messes things up. And this is also the end. This is, this is the pivot for her. Uh, she loses out to him uh, here, and, and then he outmaneuvers her from this point. Uh, this is with Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, here she is uh, in Indonesia with President Sukarno. Um, this is copyrighted. Um, so this is her signing an agreement uh, with uh, President Harry Truman, and this is about food grains, um, kind of a complicated story, but um, just so I flag this. Um, this is another picture that I, I really love. 
Um, this is with Mary McLeod Bethune and Ralph Bunch. Uh, so Ralph Bunch um, won the Nobel Peace Prize and is a founding figure of the UN. And um, I'm affiliated with a, 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 an institute called the Ralph Bunch Institute. So I, I, I have a particular... Um, uh, I have particular interest in this photo. Um, Mary McLeod Bethune um, contributed to the UN Charter. She was one of a few handful of women, and I believe the only African-American to contribute to the creation of the UN Charter. And uh, she also started the National Council for Negro Women, <coughs> among a whole amazing array of other things. Okay, this next one is really cool. <laughs> so the picture itself doesn't tell you anything. You have to read that little byline. This is her with her daughter, her eldest daughter, Chandraleka Mehta, at the Tidings Committee. These are the McCarthy hearings. Oh, wow. And she's there. This is the gallery. She's sitting in the gallery for Dorothy Kenyon. Uh, Dorothy Kenyon is a famous lawyer uh, who McCarthy accused of communism. And this is a, this is a famous moment where she gets up and says, I, have, I am not, nor have I ever been, a member of the Communist Party. It's a, sort of a legendary moment. And uh, Dorothy Kenyon goes on to become, in, in, from our perspective, a hero to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, and um, anyway. so. Um, uh, now, this, this is emblematic of the kind of media coverage that she received during her time. Um, this is um, um, McLean's magazine from Canada, uh, which, I mean, I don't really need to say too much more about this. Uh, and this is um, a, uh, an advertisement about, uh, for a, a talk that she's going to give. Um, and it starts, as you see, its headline, India's first woman ambassador to the US. Actually, it's she was the first woman ambassador to the US, not just India's wow. first woman ambassador. Okay, now I'm gonna end with this. Uh, <laughs> not this, in a second. This is a famous photograph. Mm. I'm gonna read a little snippet here of something else uh, that, from me, but um, this, will, this is my conclusion. Iconic. Seated on a dais, two figures lean into one another, at camera right sits Mahatma Gandhi, bespeckled, Spartan in his loincloth, holding some sheaves of paper. On the left is his protege and formal successor, Jawaharlal Nehru. Debonair in his starched white shirt and cap and homespun coarse cotton vest with mandarin collar, he holds a pair of half-folded glasses. The faces of both men are relaxed as they share an intimate moment, a private quip, their heads ever so tilted towards one another. They laugh. This picture was captured by the renowned Associated Press photographer Max Desfor at the All India Congress Committee meeting in Bombay on the 6th of July, 1946. The image contained many layers, told so much about these two, their charisma, their shared chemistry, their close bond, their mutual admiration, their different personal choices, and the new India about to be made free from the long period of colonial rule. It caught people's imagination and it became a defining photograph. So I was kind of stunned a few years ago to find that the original is actually quite different. 
This is the original photograph. In this, the camera takes a much wider angle. The V between the two lilting heads is now not the center of the image at all, but rather off to the top right. Nehru sits in the middle of the image, and to his left is his sister, Vijay Lakshmi Pandit. Radiant in an all-white homespun sari with sleeveless blouse, she glances off to the side with a knowing smirk on her face. There were three who were part of that moment, not two, but she has been sliced right out of it, erased from the public archive of that moment and thus from the history of it altogether. Now, I've reflected on this photograph and its reproduction over several years. Sorry, one second. I'm just wrapping up here. No, uh, using, take your time. Take your... using the original for the cover of my previous book, The Peacemakers, which told, well, when Max Desfor passed away at 104 last year, the AP featured the original photograph, this one, the one that included Madame Pundit in its obituary. The true story was now there for all to see. Her excision was not accidental, of course. It was rather a purposeful act of exclusion, a knowing omission that purged her from the narrative and part of a much more systemic deletion of women from the realms of achievement and action. As I thought on all this, I grew more fascinated by some of the things she's done. Okay, now. This is the desk for photograph. There's another version of this photograph, not taken by him, but taken by someone else that I have seen. But I've only seen it once, and uh, um, uh, Master Suter and, and, um, and, and Dr. Suter, we, we discussed this yesterday, and I cannot find it again for the life of me, because I, so I, I, cannot, I cannot find it. Um, but I have seen this. Um, so I've once seen this photograph, this other photograph, in this version, the parallel version, Nehru is slanted more towards his sister. She is leaning in. Her face is wide and bright, and she is looking directly at her brother and the Mahatma. Her mouth is open in a toothy grin. There's a new possibility altogether. She isn't simply amusedly listening in. She's telling the joke. That's it. Thank you. Madam Vijay Lakshmi Pandit, especially here in these hallowed halls, for they are hallowed not simply because of a long and proud history of accomplishment in a variety of fields of inquiry, 